0: From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, welcoming you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. Today, Alfred Turner and I will be talking with Catherine Smith, author of Methodists and Moonshiners, Another Prohibition Expedition Through the South with Cocktail Recipes,
1: For this follow-up to her book, Baptists and Bootleggers, Catherine once again hits the road, this time following the trail of George Washington as he traveled from Philadelphia to Augusta. She digs into the history of the towns along the way, especially during Prohibition.
0: We'll talk about some of that history and about Washington's Mount Vernon Distillery, as well as some of the colorful stories and tasty cocktails that Catherine discovered in her travels. Catherine Smith, welcome back to the Journal.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Your third visit. Woohoo. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about you before we get into talking about your book. And I got to get the title right out there. Yeah. And the subtitle. Yes. Methodists and Moonshiners, another prohibition expedition through the South. With cocktail recipes,
2: <laughs> maybe I should have said with more cocktail recipes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, mm. before we get into the cocktail recipes mm. and your travels mm-hmm. with your aunt, yeah. uh, let's talk about who you are for a second. You you were a journalist.
2: Well, I still think of myself as a journalist, but um, I was a newspaper journalist and uh, worked at three South Carolina dailies. Uh, 17 years after I was graduated from the University of Georgia. Then I went into nonprofit work and did that for 17 years. And about 10 years ago, I've stepped down from that and have been writing ever since. I've written, this is my sixth nonfiction book, and I've just finished a fifth fiction book with a co-author. I write a mystery series with Kelly Durham.
0: On your previous trip to the journal, you were talking about Baptists and bootleggers. <laughs> yeah. And you have Methodists and moonshiners yeah uh, what are you gonna do for the Presbyterians
2: um, someone had suggested that but the only thing I could think of was Presbyterians and prostitutes and I just uh, that's just uh, not I, a realm of I, sin I that I, I want don't to think get you into go there. no I, don't. I think I'm ready to move on but
1: <laughs> <laughs> well and you know it's an interesting story how you got the title for the first book because mm-hmm. isn't that comes from the world of economics
2: it is from my, my father's theory um, which is Bootleggers and Baptists, we flipped the title for my book, um, but it's a theory about regulation, that regulation is more apt to be passed and, posed and and to be durable if you've got moral cover for it. The theory is based on Baptists and bootleggers both want to ban alcohol sales on Sunday, the Baptists, because it's a sin, the bootleggers, because that opens the market for them. If you can't get it legally, you can get it illegally. So um, my my father and my son are both economics professors, and they wrote a book of case studies together a few years ago called Bootleggers and Baptists. And when I told people, you know, just mentioned that my father and son had written this book and how cool it was with, you know, these 50 years apart in age, they'd say, oh, that sounds like a fun book. And I'd have to say, well, it's an economics book. It's interesting, but not a whole lot of fun. (laughs) But since I don't have a Ph.D. or even a master's degree, I've just got a journalism degree from the University of Georgia, which was the number one party school in the nation when I was a student. (laughs) I decided to write books about the real bootleggers and Baptists from Prohibition years, and I had um, so many people after my book came out, Baptists and Bootleggers, said, oh, you should have written about such and such, and you didn't know about this, and... And I'd had to miss a lot of the South because COVID was going on when I was researching the first book. So I had just completely missed Virginia and North Carolina, which are just hotbeds of moonshine activity. So I convinced my publisher to come back and um, do a companion volume that covers some of the stuff I missed.
0: And why did you pick on the Methodists?
2: Actually, well, well Dad had always said, you know— it, He didn't want to pick on the Baptists with his his theory. He said, I I might as well have called it Methodist and Moonshiners. But I found out that the Methodists were much bigger drivers of temperance and prohibition than the Baptists were. Who knew?
0: Well, and part of it may have been church organization, too.
2: Right. The, The Methodists were so dominant that they had the largest denomination in the country prior to the Civil War.
0: Yeah. And, of course, on your journeys with your aunt. And let's talk about your your aunt, Susan. (laughs) After reading your book, somebody said, oh, she travels with her aunt, with her auntie Mame. I said, no, I think in this case it was Catherine. Leading her aunt (laughs) on this journey.
2: Yeah. And I don't want people to visualize an an elderly lady with a walker. Um, My aunt is just a few years older than I am. I was born on her eighth birthday. So she's a whole lot of fun and a very active um, lady in her mid 70s. So.
0: Okay. Well, you do start off with the Methodists, with John Wesley coming to Mm -hmm. Georgia and South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And need to remind folks that. he is credited with uh, the beginnings of methodism but he died an anglican clergyman but he did talk about and promote abstinence along with singing uh, and reforming the church of england and the method that's how the, that's how the church eventually got he was name. very
2: methodical and he and some other his brother charles who was a great hymn writer and some of their um, colleagues called them the Bible moths or the Bible bigots or the Methodists, and I'm glad that Methodists stuck, because wouldn't you hate to be a member of the first Bible bigots church, <laughs> <laughs> Columbia or every other city?
0: <laughs> well, you begin your journey after you you talk about Methodism mm-hmm. and Prohibition. Yeah. You start off with Journeys Through the South, and you begin with George Washington at Mount Vernon.
2: Yeah, That was how the first two chapters are are all about following George Washington's uh, visit to the South in 1791. And we started out Mount Vernon, just as he did, and we drove all the way down to Savannah, which was his end point. Then he went back up. And what I had um, discovered when I was writing Baptist and Bootleggers was that George Washington was a distiller. And in fact, he had if not the largest distillery in our young country, one of the largest at Mount Vernon, after his presidency, he had a a Scot who was his farm manager. And this Scot, I wish I could do a Scottish accident, um, advised him that he could make a whole lot more money distilling his grains rather than grinding them into flour. And Washington was interested in innovation. So he said, well, Let's give it a try,
0: and and the grain was rye.
2: Rye mm-hmm. made so much money; it was the biggest profit center of Mount Vernon. So after the first year it was successful, they increased their capacity and made eleven thousand gallons of rye whiskey, mostly just shipping it to the taverns in Alexandria.
1: Well, so, so the the good old boys were <laughs> drinking whiskey and whiskey and rye. <laughs> no, I don't
0: know.
2: Well, it was what you'd call white dog because it was mm-hmm. not aged. Um, it wasn't moonshine because he paid his taxes, obviously, but it was white dog and the, pretty
1: strong stuff. I was going to say that had to be rough.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, that we were we were a rough people, you mm. know, um, nation of very mm. heavy drinkers.
0: Well, see, George discovered what uh, the mountaineers had discovered. It made more sense, money wise, to convert their corn to liquor. They got more money for it, and it's easier to ship. Much
2: more portable, yeah. 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 And it didn't spoil.
0: And, of course, <laughs> n- now Mount Vernon has got its own distillery.
2: They rebuilt the distillery, which had burned um, in the early 19th century, and they, they built it on the—, the Foundation and using the plans um, George Washington kept meticulous records and so they now still are making rye whiskey there in it's very small quantities about a thousand gallons a year a quart bottle of George Washington's rye sells for about two hundred and fifty dollars
0: well, I have the first bottle of rye that they ever uh, produced woo because I have a very assertive daughter who works in Washington, and she went to the distillery and said, my father is the George Washington professor at the University of <laughs> South Carolina, and I have the bottle, number one.
2: Wow. Uh,
0: the rye has all been consumed, but the bottle is, <laughs> okay. is has been saved.
2: <laughs> I was going to say, that thing could probably be auctioned off for thousands of dollars <laughs> if you still had the rye in it. Well, the... The um, Steep Ashore, who's the guy who makes the the booze now, and the, he's also the the miller at Mount Vernon, said those first few bottles weren't so tasty, but he said they've gotten better over time. And actually, I bought a like a mini bottle, about a two ounce bottle, at the souvenir shop for twenty five dollars, mm-hmm. and my husband and I drank that off when I got home. That was my gift to him. But it's it's not bad stuff.
0: So what what's your drink recipe with rye?
2: Ooh, um, gosh, I'll have to look and see.
0: I guess this is a good point
1: to to say wherever you go, you try to tie a recipe to the story in the right, place.
2: Right, right. Actually, it wasn't a rye recipe at all. The, the Washington recipe was for a punch called Fish House Punch. And they tend to just throw everything they have into these punch recipes. But this one has um, Jamaica rum, brandy, and peach brandy. Uh, Four pounds of sugar, a pint of lemon juice, nine pints of water. You make lemonade first, and then you add all the liquors to it.
0: Most colonial punches, two glasses and you'll be kissing doorknobs.
2: I think so. (laughs) <laughs> but this was the one that was supposed to be one of his favorites. But George Washington was definitely a social drinker. On one of his stops on the trip south, he he was not very hungry, and he asked his hostess for a hard-boiled egg and some coffee with a little rum in it for breakfast. But he liked Madeira wine. You know, all members of the gentry drank then, but he really abhorred drunkenness, and he just had his <laughs> fill of it, so to speak, commanding soldiers who were and officers who were sometimes just too drunk to even function on a battlefield.
0: Well, then he had to be very abstemious when he came to Charleston and they <laughs> and these other towns, and you had the toasts after dinner to the colonies, to the you know yeah. you know two do, sometimes two dozen toasts
2: yeah but punctuated with cannon fire. Can you imagine? Oh, the hangovers. Oh, the hangovers. <laughs> There's a, a, a story in Savannah that I think is apocryphal that he had um, too much of their Chatham County artillery punch um, there and said he would never go back to Savannah again. But he never went back, but that's not why. He never went back to Richmond again <laughs> either.
0: <laughs> well, uh, he, he being a wise man, again, when you were served to punch, you better be careful with how much you take.
2: Yeah powerful stuff yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and
0: of course he he came through south carolina on that trip mhm
2: mm-hmm. he went to to georgetown he went to hampton plantation had breakfast there He visited the Pinckney Farm. He rode his horse on Myrtle Beach on the the Grand Strand. On on the
0: Grand Strand. Yeah. Uh, That must
2: have been a sight because he had this beautiful white Prescott, was the name of his horse.
0: Well, and and the Grand Strand truly was this hard packed, very wide beach. It it was a Grand Strand. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, He
0: rode there instead of on the roads of South Carolina, which, because he was in, most of the time, he was in a carriage.
2: Right. Right.
0: a, A very elegant.
2: Yeah, carriage. he had this this carriage commissioned. it was a lightweight carriage and drawn by four horses but he liked to come into a city on his horse in uniform to show himself to the people and you know George Washington was a very large man. he was six two at a time when most men are, were you know five six most women are under five feet tall. so he made quite an impression as you can imagine.
0: And it's interesting, he also noted uh, in different towns, and it was certainly true in Columbia and Camden, when they had a ball, he commented on the number of ladies present. That's
2: right, and counted them, and not just round numbers. You know, he said, oh, 256 women, and especially in Charleston, he was quite impressed with the women of Charleston.
0: Now, he didn't dance with all of them. I don't know
2: that he did dancing, but he'd come up and bow to each and speak to each. The dancing, I'm not so sure about. But he always wore a black velvet suit. I'm sure he looked quite handsome. And the women, the style then was to pile their hair way up high on their heads and probably had all kinds of hair pieces and to weave ribbons through their coiffure that said, you know, George Washington, our hero. I had little portraits on on it. So he must have liked that. But um, I, I really became – it gave me a greater – far greater appreciation for George Washington than I'd had before. But I do have a picture of his um, teeth in the book, his artificial teeth, which are just horrifying to look at. Um, I'm told at Mount Vernon it's the most requested picture from their archive is wow. George Washington's yeah, teeth. Yeah,
0: it's – actually, they're very grim. Uh, you, know, you, you want to make a grimace, and you know, oh, and just wood and – human teeth
2: and hippopotamus ivory and horse teeth that they would carve to kind of kind of be shaped like a human tooth but they were set in lead plates and then they had gold wires joining the two lead plates i don't know how he ate or talked with those things in his mouth
0: well let listen let's, <laughs> let, let, let's move on to beyond that yeah. to uh, a little bit more modern times because mm-hmm. prohibition is the raison d'etre for your your work. Right. Uh, And we're talking about how it came to pass.
2: Yeah. Well, the temperance movement actually started before the Civil War because of the amount of drinking and drunkenness in America. It just could not continue. And it was driven by women and Methodist women and Methodist ministers and... um, fundamentalist preachers who led a, a effort to dry up the, the country somewhat. It was interrupted by the Civil War because Lincoln needed um, an excise tax on liquor, so he wasn't going to urge um, abstinence or temperance. But it, it picked back up after the Civil War with two organizations, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was founded in 1874, and then the Anti-Saloon League, which came along about 20 years later, both led by Methodists. And the ASL was, in fact, was a very politically astute organization. Um, the man who was, the de facto leader was a man named Wayne Wheeler, who was known as Boss Dry. And if you got on the wrong side of Boss Drive by voting for you know, loosening up alcohol laws or, or not voting for prohibition laws, you could lose your seat in Congress or your legislature or the governor's mansion. He was that powerful. So as things went along in the early 20th century, the income tax was passed with that constitutional amendment. So the government was not as dependent on the excise tax anymore. Um, there was a very big anti German feeling because of World War I, and most of the saloons in America were owned or affiliated by German beer companies.
0: That's an interesting segue. Let's, yeah, because beer was produced in the colonies prior to the yeah. the Great German immigration yeah. in the in the nineteenth century.
2: But it was a different kind of beer. Yes, it was kind of a heavy spruce beer or molasses beer, and the German method made this nice light golden lager. And so, not only the German immigrants were drinking it; soon, everybody else was drinking it too. And beer became um, much more popular than hard liquor in the country. But anyway, the, this anti-immigrant feeling, uh, which is actually very much like it is today, took hold of the country, and anything that had to do with Germans was became very unpopular.
0: That was especially true here in, in South Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, because there was a German-language newspaper in Charleston. Charleston mm-hmm. had a very large German
2: mm-hmm. uh, community,
0: mm-hmm. and in Lexington County, the country Lutheran churches expected their pastor to preach at least once a year in German. German,
2: yeah. So it's kind of interesting that the the um, English-speaking Lutheran churches were in favor of Prohibition, but the German-speaking ones were not. <laughs> <laughs> but even the Episcopalians and Catholics had um, temperance organizations as part of their institutional structure. So even though they continued to take wine with communion, they did get on the bandwagon. Well,
0: let's talk about that because once Prohibition Was passed. Then it was enforced by the Volstead Act, Act, and people who voted for prohibition didn't realize that they were outlawing everything. Right. So
2: they uh, thought it was hard liquor. They were. It was the anti-saloon. They were thought they were getting rid of of saloons, but they were surprised to learn that they couldn't even make homebrew beer. Well, up to a certain amount they could, but that you couldn't buy light wine. And the um, the Volstead Act was much more draconian than the Eighteenth Amendment was,
0: and it, of course, was passed by Congress.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, President Wilson vetoed it, and they overrode the veto.
0: There it remained on the on the books until 1933. But there were exceptions uh, yeah. in the Volstead Act. You, <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, you could have communion wine,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, Jewish. <clears throat>
2: It could be used in their sacramental practices.
0: There were ways to get around it. There was medicinal whiskey. (laughs) Yeah. During the great influenza pandemic here in South Carolina, the Columbia Medical Society, by a one-vote majority, said that the consumption of whiskey would be advantageous to fighting the pandemic. (laughs) And the complaint was made that that the majority... The six men who voted for it were all members of Trinity Episcopal Church.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Oh, those Wiscopalians. I'm one myself. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So, you know.
1: uh, Talking about medicinal liquor, mm -hmm. you you had to be, what, get a prescription for it,
2: right? You did. Um, And a doctor could write a prescription, I think, every 10 days of a Mm -hmm. a pint or a half pint. For just about anything he wanted to, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. that was, you know, prescription pads would be stolen and they'd be, um, you know, uh, bootlegged and, Mm. you know. Fake prescription. It was it was just right for abuse.
1: W. C. Fields famously said that he always carried some whiskey with him in case of snake bite <laughs> and then and then confessed to also carrying a snake. <laughs> so,
2: yeah. yeah. Well, it, well, that was one of the things it could be used for was snake bite.
0: <laughs> but then, of course, you always had to be had to be concerned about uh, the quality of whatever whiskey you were getting, but just yeah. otherwise, yeah. I was. Fascinated by the fact that the distilleries in Kentucky and Tennessee were full of barrels of whiskey, mm-hmm. which they continued to sell sub rosa during the during Prohibition. Well,
2: they were supposedly guarded in federal warehouses, but the corruption was just crazy. You know, you could pay off a guard, and um, these people would buy these um, distilleries, like the Jack Daniel's distillery was bought, and they would milk. The whiskey out slowly and replace it with distilled water and you know they were not in, they were not closely inspected so that well we got big barrels of something in here.
0: And of so- course then there were bootleggers who were bringing it in through all of the little inlets in South Carolina Absolutely. and on the Gulf Coast or right across the border from uh, from Canada in Mexico,
2: and so Mexico. yeah, and then just the moonshine that was being made um, I found it interesting that North Carolina and Virginia both claimed to be the moonshine capital of the of the world, so by two different authors, so I said they just have to duke it out of between them about which was the
0: and then. What you consumed was at your own risk.
2: Just like with street drugs today. But there were some terrible things that were put into this alcohol to make it a desirable color or to give it some taste. And it killed people. Well,
0: let's talk about the palatable liquor because everywhere <laughs> every, everywhere you, you and your Aunt Susan went, uh, you went to uh, – a nice hotel and mm-hmm. you get, and you got a drink and mm-hmm. and you went to smaller places, inns, and restaurants, and you'd usually pick up their house specialty drink, yeah so. Let's talk about some of those encounters.
2: Yeah, we went to the um, Jefferson Hotel in Richmond, and they had a drink called the French Traveler, which was um, a tie-in with an uh, art exhibit that was going on at the time. It was um, art by Americans who'd actually traveled to mm-hmm. France. And one of my favorite stories is we went um, to a restaurant in New Bern, which was a very interesting place to visit. Um, very haunted.
0: Yeah, for our listeners, Newburn, North North Carolina.
2: Carolina. Yeah, which was a major city at the time. It had been the capital of North Carolina during the uh, colonial days. And we were eating at the, around a horseshoe bar and a restaurant in Newburn, and um, just struck a, a conversation with a couple of guys at the, in the, at the end of the horseshoe and. When Susan told them about the book we were were researching, they said, oh, well, there's a speakeasy here in New Bern, and uh, when we get finished eating, let's let's go over there. Sure enough, they took us down an alleyway and up some back steps to this wonderful um, place called the Tonic Parlor. Did
0: you knock three times and whisper low?
2: I don't remember that we had to do that, Um, but a lot of the speakeasies that I've been to, they do have passwords, they have dress codes, you'll go down a back alley and there's just a red light over the door. There's one in Greenville that you enter. It's in the old um, Greenville News Building. Then you go through what is like the editor's office. <laughs> and then when the door opens, you're in this really nice, snazzy, modern modern bar. But this one was very authentic and uh, had a little um, blue, blues band playing, great music. And their drink was a what they called the Carolina Libre. So like the Cuba Libre, but it's made with... Uh, a North Carolina whiskey and Pepsi, because mm. Pepsi was created in New Bern. Mm. It's the Pepsi capital of the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we just, we, we were very loose with our trip and just kind of wandered around finding things like that.
0: In South Carolina, you got reacquainted with Elliot White Springs.
2: Mm-hmm. What a fascinating person. Um, he was just a helium, of one of the most storied. Pilots in World War One came home, went to work for his his father with their textile company, and then inherited it when his father died and built it up into Springs Industries, just one of, a major giant of the of the world. But um, he was one of his his biographers said that he was one of the most accomplished bartenders in uniform during the Great War. And his drink of choice was eggnog, so they would just go out into the country and France and all the places they were and just buy milk and eggs and everything you need to make eggnogs and just make it just by the gallons and gallons, consuming it. Um, Interesting guy.
0: That's not quite as dangerous as punch, but it it is. Uh, We we have dear friends (laughs) whose grandparents were very strict Baptists, but grandmother made incredible eggnog (laughs) at
2: Christmas. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just at Christmas, I'm sure. Uh, He made it year-round. And I do have his eggnog recipe in there, by the way.
0: Well, well, you want to read it for us?
2: Oh, let me find it.
1: I have to say I find this man more and more interesting. I mean, not that he wasn't interesting to start with, but... During World War One, correct?
2: Yeah, oh, he, he
1: was known as a bartender.
2: Exactly. He he flew over to um, from England to France with a, an extra large shaker in the in the, in the um, <laughs> cockpit with him. But he was also a very fine writer. Um, oh, was yeah? one of the highest paid writers in the 1920s. Wrote for magazines and um, published several books, which I read. Um, yeah. Okay, we've got I've got two recipes for him. One is Aviator's eggnog, and this makes um eight and a half gallons. Eight and a half gallons, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Ten dozen eggs, twenty-two quarts of cream, eight and three quarters quarts of spirits, it doesn't say what, just whatever you have on hand, I guess, and two and a half pounds of sugar. Separate the eggs, beat the yolks hard and long, slowly pour and stir in the cream. Stir in the sugar. Add the spirits in a thin stream, stirring at the same time. Beat the egg whites and divide into equal portions. Pour and stir in half, and then pour the other half on top without stirring. So this came from, um, actually this came from the, I adapted it from the Eat, Drink, and Be Merry in Maryland cookbook. But um, this, I think, would, would be close to what he was drinking. The other one is something called a Brandy Smash. You use a small bar glass. You take a teaspoonful of sugar, two tablespoons of water, three or four sprigs of tender mint, and a wine glass full of brandy. You press the mint and the sugar and the water to extract the flavor, add the brandy, and fill the glass two-thirds full of shaved ice. Stir thoroughly and ornament with half a slice of orange and a few sprigs of mint. Hmm. Stir with a straw. And this was a drink that was... um, mentioned quite a bit in his book, Dream, Leave Me With a Smile, which was a, quite an interesting book about a, a young flyer.
0: Well, Catherine, you have f- interesting, fabulous recipes, but I guess the one that really caught my attention, Patty's Bowl weevil. Uh, <laughs> that was... Just the name of it <laughs> grabbed my attention.
2: Yeah, um, I spent a lot of time um, When In the wonderful little town of Noonan, Georgia, I did an art residency there and just made so many good friends that I've been back a couple of times since. And they do a bourbon on the porch event in the summer to raise money for their um, arts council. And a local woman invented this drink for dessert. Um, In a small, wide-footed glass, you pour a shot of bourbon. And they used um, a bourbon from Atlanta called Fiddler Bourbon. A shot of cream de c- cacao? cacao, cacao, cacao. I'm sorry. And then you you stir it, and then you hand the cup to the guest along with a coconut popsicle that you dunk into the class. And then you you know you eat on the popsicle and then you dunk and then you eat and then you drink what's left. But it the, was the, wonderful.
0: But, but explain the symbolism.
2: Oh, yeah. This is what my friend Michael Scott said about it. It represents the boll weevil, an insect that devastated the South's cotton economy, while the coconut popsicle represents the cotton, and the rich caramel of the bourbon captures the warm hospitality of the town that embraces inspirational authors and artists from all over the world. And that's Noonan. Uh,
0: Okay. (laughs) I just just thought that...
2: uh, That was a great recipe.
0: (laughs) Great, great recipe. Now... You and your Aunt Susan, mm. everywhere you went, you made side trips to cemeteries.
2: Yeah, and I did that in Baptist and Bootleggers, um, why?
0: too.
2: Why? Uh, well, I'm, I'm just a cemetery freak. And a lot of times when people are taking an expedition or a tour or something, they just go see an interesting cemetery. Or sometimes you're looking for someone. We wanted to find the grave of these um, this father and son who had been executed for a, a murder, and um, it turned out to be this tiny cemetery. You had to go down a private driveway.
0: And where was this?
2: This was in Virginia. Okay. Yeah, Hillsville, Virginia.
0: A lot of your travels are serendipitous. Yeah. Yes, you have a, a general plan, but...
2: Oh, yeah. We didn't even plan to go to Mount Airy. We just took a wrong turn and said, oh, look, there's Mount Airy. Let's stop there for lunch. And then we found out all the stuff that resulted in a whole chapter of the book.
0: Well, I mean, you <laughs> I mean, you, you could sit in the jail with Deputy Fife. <laughs>
2: You can go in a a tour in a black and white police car. You can eat at Obie's Candy Shop. We ate at Snappy Lunch, which was a diner that was open in Andy Griffith's high school days where their specialty is the pork chop sandwich.
0: And you got a picture of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. How was it? It was delicious, but boy, you know, it would ha- stop your heart. I hope I don't have any <laughs> arterial, you know, stop the you know, blockages going on. It's a deep fried pork chop, chili, slaw, you name it. Oh. Yeah, it was good.
1: Very
0: southern.
2: <laughs> very southern, very southern.
0: <laughs> okay. Of all the places on this particular trip, what was your favorite town?
2: Um. I'll have to say it would be a tie between New Bern and Noonan.
0: I picked Noonan because of And Noonan is where? In Georgia. It's just south of Atlanta. Mm -hmm.
2: It is just a really, really charming town, and and the people there are very active in the arts. It's amazing what goes on in this small town. Um, Courthouse Square, and that also has a really interesting prohibition story that um, – post-prohibition story that involves – Johnny Cash and Andy Griffith, of all things. So you'll have to buy the book to find out about that one.
0: <laughs> well, you, you picked small towns. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you didn't uh, bypass big towns. Mm-mm. But I think this is probably true. The better stories <laughs> come from the small towns. I agree. Catherine, I hate to say it, Alfred's giving us the wind-up sign. Oh, darn. Catherine Smith, author of Methodists and Moonshiners, another prohibition expedition through the south with cocktail recipes. Mm-hmm. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal.
2: Thank you. It was a joy.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It's always a pleasure to talk with Katherine Smith. She's an interesting guest. She digs up interesting history and always has a twist, whether it is for a drink or with a tale.
1: Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Remember, the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters.
0: New episodes of Walter Edgar's Journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org, on the SCETV app, as well as your favorite podcast provider. We'll talk again soon.